It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me, or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. We've got petitions pending before the Supreme Court that identify in chapter and verse the number of times state election officials ignored or violated their state law in order to put Vice President Biden over the finish line. We know there was fraud, traditional fraud that occurred. We know that dead people voted. But we now know because we caught it live last time in real time how the machines contributed to that fraud. And let me as simply as I can explain it. You know the old way was to have a bunch of ballots sitting in a box under the floor and when you needed more you pulled them out in the dark of night. They put those ballots in a secret folder in the machines, sitting there waiting until they know how many they need. And then the machine, after the close of polls, we now know who's voted and we know who hasn't. And I can now, in that machine, match those unvoted ballots with an unvoted voter and put them together in the machine. And how do we know that happened last night in real time? You saw when it got to 99% of the vote total and then it stopped. The percentage stopped, but the votes didn't stop. What happened, and you don't see this on Fox or any other stations, but the data shows that the denominator, how many ballots remain to be counted? How else do you figure out the percentage that you have? How many remain to be counted? That number started moving up. That means they were unloading the ballots from that secret folder, matching them, matching them to the unvoted voter, and voila, we have enough votes to barely get over the finish line. We saw it happen in real time last night, and it happened on November 3rd as well. And all we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at one o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. We no longer live in a self-governing republic if we can't get the answer to this question. This is bigger than President Trump. It is the very essence of our Republican form of government, and it has to be done. And anybody that is not willing to stand up to do it does not deserve to be in the office. It is that simple. All right, that's the voice of John Eastman, and that was January the 6th of 2021. Seems like it was 10 years ago, but it wasn't. It was just a few months ago, and life has changed for so many people as a result of that day. It certainly has changed for John Eastman. I remember when I heard him say that, how my heart leapt, because you will recall that during that time, attorneys were coming under tremendous pressure to quit uh, representing President Trump, to, uh, to not defend him in any way. It was like an avalanche of pressure. And here was John Eastman 
uh, serving boldly as the president's attorney, standing on the stage with him uh, with as much passion as President Trump ever had and with it representing really uh, every man, us, me, you, all of us, speaking the truth on that stage, who would have thought that those words would be criminal? And yet John Eastman has had nothing uh, but heartache, or heartache, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but uh, let's just say that his career is at risk because of what he did on behalf of this nation, on that stage, and subsequently before and after that. Uh, John uh, is the former dean of the Chapman University Law School. Former, I say. We'll get into that because uh, as a result of his statements on January 6th and his representation of President Trump, uh, he lost that position. He's also a former high-ranking official at the Federalist, a chief advisor on on one of the great committees, uh, no longer with the, the conservative Federalist organization. Uh, one by one, the things that have supported him and caused him to be, before January 6th, a man of uh, great renown, are being stripped from him. And so, you know, the just as the, the long knives are after ordinary people who went to the Capitol on January 6th uh, just to support President Trump, some going inside, no doubt something doing people things they shouldn't have done, but the whole mass of them under this cloud of uh, wickedness. So John Eastman is being pursued right now. I've asked him to join us this morning because the January 6th committee is after him. Others are after him to lose his his bar, position in the bar, which would mean he would lose his livelihood. And so um, John joins us this morning because, uh, you know, I, I have tremendous respect for him, and I want to bring his story to you because I want us to help him in any way we can. John Eastman, thank you for joining me this morning. Well, Sandy, thanks very much for that very kind introduction and for having me on the program. You know, John, I just have to say one more addendum. Please let me indul- let me indul- indulge myself here. Uh, I probably think, I can only imagine that because of all you're going through, you listen to your own words on January 6th, and there may be some cringing because you know <clears throat> how difficult things have become in your life. But let me just say that in those unguarded moments before you realized the probably in detail or living color, what the price would be for that. That was, that passion was real, and what you said was true, and your courage was incredible. And so my hat's off to you. No matter what happens, uh, you are a hero to so many people. You have led the way, and courage breeds courage. And so thank you for that. Now let's go on. I want to talk, uh, let's talk just briefly. Uh, I did mentioned that you lost your position at Chapman. Are you still there at all? Or are you gone completely? No, no, no. I, uh, I officially retired. We entered into a settlement agreement, the terms of which are confidential, but I think people um, can probably uh, read my statement and the university's official statement and read between the lines about all that. Um, uh, but uh, the, the Claremont Institute, uh, which I've, with which I've been affiliated for, boy, almost 40 years uh, as a senior fellow now, um, they used to subsidize the Constitutional uh, Supreme Court Clinic at Chapman, and they cut that subsidy off the day um, they cut me off, and uh, we just rolled that money over to Claremont and put me on full-time. I've also created a new law firm called Constitutional Counsel Group. The name of that firm was very deliberate um, because there are a lot of lawyers who want to stand up uh, against what they see going on in the country. And their law firms are exacting a heavy price uh, if they do so. Uh, uh, our friend Cleta Mitchell, for example, lost her longstanding senior partner position uh, with Foley and Lardner. 
because she dared to represent President Trump, and that became public. Um, and so we named it Constitutional Council Group rather than, you know, uh, as law firms normally do, the names of the founding partners, so that it could serve as an umbrella for any lawyer who stands up, loses their position at their law firms and need to bring their book of business or whatever uh, to a new firm um, and for as long or as short as they need to get their feet back on the ground. And the purpose of that firm is to continue my whole career's efforts of defending the Constitution as originally written, as originally meant, not as altered by activist judicial decisions. Um, our, our mission is to recover the principles of the American founding and restore them to their rightful and preeminent authority in our national life and to do that through strategic litigation. So you are officially with Claremont full-time. And, and let me, I, I think I would be curious to know, have, how, what kind of response have you gotten from attorneys around the country? Well, we've got, we've got a large network of attorneys uh, that are working with us uh, through our Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Claremont Institute, which is the public interest wing of it, um, uh, or directly on paid cases through the, the law firm, the Constitutional Counsel Group. Um, but another reason I have that name is so that they can do their work uh, outside of the public eye and not suffer the the kind of uh, shunning that uh, that I've been dealing with. I mean, um, you know, we're we're in a battle here, and too many too many people on the right are just sitting on the sidelines trying to trying to keep their skin safe. But you know, there's the old line, the 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 old famous line when they when they came for the Jews, I didn't First object because I wasn't a Jew, and it goes on down <laughs> yes, the list. Yes. And when they yep. came for me, there wasn't anybody yeah. left to object. Yep. Um, and people need to stand up, and they need to stand up in concert and act start acting together, um, because otherwise we'll be taken apart one at a time. Okay, so this is interesting to me, because you're you're um, help, trying to help other attorneys in trouble, while you yourself are under tremendous fire. And so, of course, it's my heart's desire to help you, John, because I ever since I first met you, I just have tremendous respect. So many of us are going to bat for you the best way we can. And um, now, let's talk about the January 6th committee, of course, is a subject of my conversation here often because the whole January 6th fiasco makes me furious. But the January 6th committee was is a kangaroo court set up by Nancy Pelosi. They've been subpoenaing hundreds of Trump associates. The most high profile lately was Steve Bannon, uh, and he's refusing to testify. They're holding him in, in contempt. It's the first time, I think, in 40 years anyone has been subpoenaed over not testifying before Congress. You might remember that during the Obama administration, uh, um, most of his, I can't think of specific names, but they refused to testify before Congress. It was not Lois a big Lerner, deal. Eric Holder, a number of Thank them. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And so now it's different, you see. Now, now Steve Bannon is in jeopardy, tremendous legal jeopardy because of that. And so now, John, you yourself are also in legal jeopardy because the January 6th committee, headed by Bernie Thompson, uh, has subpoenaed you to talk. Now, to talk before, just testify before them. Uh, tell us, uh, First of all, have you? Is that a new subpoena for you, or is it? Has it been on in the in the works for a few weeks here? Well, so there are two things. One, uh, I got this subpoena directly to me back in early November. Um, it it includes twenty nine categories of documents, including things that are explicitly covered by attorney client privilege. Um, it wants my conversations as I was representing the former president. Um, uh, it wants it wants all of my communications with people that I was consulting, investigators that I was 
um, uh, that I was consulting with and getting information from. These are what the requests are. I'm not acknowledging that such things exist. Um, but they want all of that. All of that would be protected by attorney-client privilege or attorney work product. Um, uh, and then just over the weekend, a large number of us, we don't know how many, because my phone company didn't disclose the list of phone numbers. They just said, you're on the list. Uh, they want uh, an unbelievably broad uh, uh, amount of information about all of my uh, telephone communications, my email traffic, all of this stuff. Um, all of the people that share my account, which now you know would uh, would in all likelihood involve my family members, my kids, <laughs> uh, and and I'm learning that a lot of other people got uh, their telephone companies got the same kind of subpoenas. This is a combination of Spanish Inquisition, of general warrant, you know, fishing expedition, and a star chamber. And it is about as un-American as the old McCarthyite on American activities uh, hearings of the 1950s. Uh, and yet this committee is being given cover by uh, uh, an in-the-tank uh, corporate press uh, who are working hand in glove with them to leak stories uh, to then build build the case for why we need this information, um, and it it is it is preposterous. And the committee itself, I, I sent a letter. My lawyer sent a letter to the committee last Wednesday, explaining why we weren't going to comply. Uh, and 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 first on the list was the illegitimacy in the way the committee was constituted. Throughout our history, committees in Congress have included members appointed by both the, the Speaker of the House and the ranking and the minority leader of the House to ensure bipartisanship. Um, the authorizing resolution of this committee requires that five of the 13 members be appointed after consultation with the ranking with the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy. But when Kevin McCarthy included Jim Banks and Jim Jordan on his list of people he wanted on that committee, Nancy Pelosi refused. And she instead put the most, the two, the two most hostile to Trump Republicans in the entire House of Representatives, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and those are the only Republicans serving on that committee. Now, John, why is that so significant? It violates the, the authorization resolution. Yeah, John, hang on just a second. No rank. John, let's hold on just one second because uh, we need to take a break. So that's a good place okay. to take it, where we just have the two Republicans that were appointed. And then let's come back because there's a lot to resonate on this. This is very complicated and people need to understand why this is so wrong because this committee is going to be wreaking havoc in the lives of so many people and we need to understand just how unjust and unjustified it is. My guest is John Eastman. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Tonight, congressional contempt looms for Trump-era DOJ official Jeffrey Clark after the January 6th committee voted unanimously. Aye. But in a last-minute offer, Clark could appear this weekend, but may cite the Fifth Amendment and decline to answer questions about efforts to overturn the 2020 election. This comes after Steve Bannon was indicted on contempt charges last month. As with Mr. Bannon, the select committee has no desire to be placed in this situation. But Mr. Clark has left us no other choice. Yeah, so that's uh, former Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey, Jeffrey Clark also being pursued by the January 6th committee. Uh, he was uh, serving President Trump, uh, giving him advice, and they want all of his information. Also, 
Uh, they won all, all of his interactions with President Trump. It's just amazing. And so he is, uh, that's, that's the way the January 6th committee is playing out. They are harassing and oppressing uh, anyone in, in or near the January 6th situation. And my a good friend Tom uh, Fitton has written this, the politicization of our nation's justice system is unfortunately nothing new. But the recent indictment of Steve Bannon is an outrageous use of power. Um, he said it's part of a larger agenda to use the events of January 6th as a vehicle to criminalize the speech of those that oppose the Biden agenda, who question issues about the election, and just generally are Trump supporters. He goes on to say Pelosi's committee is investigating criticism of the election processes and the fundamental First Amendment right to petition one's government to make sure the rules are followed. This committee is a joke. It's corrupted. That's what Tom ends with. And so our guest this morning, John Eastman, is being hassled by this January 6th committee, uh, chaired by Benny Thompson, who is a, um, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a radical leftist and has really rebuffed any attempts at reason to stop some of this testimony for good reason. And uh, so, John, when we last spoke, you were talking to us about how the committee, the formation of it, without a, any uh, minor, uh, minority members on the committee except for those appointed by Nancy Pelosi, is actually operating out of the bounds of, I don't know if you'd call it legality, but certainly the rules of the House. Can you pick up on that? Well, sir, it, and, it's, and it's illegality, too, because they're not just rules of the House, which, of course, the House can change when it wants, but it was the authorizing resolution that gave rise to the committee. That's the only source of authority for the committee. And that that authorizing resolution specifically says five of the 13 uh, shall be named to the committee after consultation with the minority leader. And Pelosi refused uh, the, the nominations that McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy had offered. Um, she did so because uh, I suspect Jim Jordan and Jim Banks had been quite effective in exposing the sham proceedings of prior committee hearings that included people like Adam Schiff and Zoe Lofgren, um, who are on this committee. Uh, uh, and, and, and this is this is extremely significant for basic fundamental fairness and due process concerns. The, the, the House rules for depositions require that the minority ranking member of the committee be consulted, um, that that ranking minority member be allowed to choose counsel to question witnesses so that there is a competing counsel rather than just a, a single counsel, and that the minority ranking member's um, uh, counsel or himself be given equal time in any questioning of witnesses. There is no ranking member on this uh, ranking minority member on this committee. Nobody to be consulted with. Nobody to be able to choose counsel. Nobody to sh- get equal time for the questioning. That means this is a Spanish Inquisition where you've got prosecutors trying to trap uh, the witnesses and nobody in that room doing anything about it. And then, and then, if they don't get anything that they need in that committee room behind closed doors. That's the star chamber aspect of it. Uh, They go out and they leak uh, with their friends in the press uh, a distorted version of what was said. We saw Adam Schiff do this repeatedly on the Ukraine impeachment hearing, uh, a closed door committee sessions, and we've already seen it happening in this committee as well. And if you're the witness and you go out publicly to correct the record, say that's not what was said at all. Now you're in contempt of Congress because that's a closed-door meeting and you're not allowed to talk about it, but they're, spe- they're protected by the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, and they can lie and distort um, and spin all they want, and you can't do anything about it. 
So there's a gag rule that is designed to foster a partisan narrative rather than to get to the truth. Uh, and that, you know, that's just among the things that are wrong with this committee. One other thing, the House rules allow witnesses who are hauled before the committee to request other witnesses to be brought before the committee who can confirm their story or who can be questioned about the other. Uh, but when there's nobody there to do the, the cross-examining question, what's the point? I mean, I, if they're going to call me before the committee, I'd love to ha- uh, have as witnesses Ruby Friedman and talk about the ballots. We all saw her pull out from under the table down in Georgia after after um, uh, observers had been sent home. I'd love to question the uh, postal inspector general who claims that the truck driver up in Pennsylvania who trucked 200,000 ballots in from Long Island uh, had recanted his story. That's false. I'd love to talk about the Democrat operatives who were put in charge of county election offices and given keys to the secure ballot rooms up in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, I'd love to talk to the, the Wisconsin Board of Elections that ordered, uh, that ordered nursing homes to allow a ballot harvesting of mentally incapacitated nursing home residents without meeting the statutory requirements for observers to protect their rights. I'd love to have all of those things questioned. But I could give that witness list, and I can imagine the kind of questions that would come out of Adam Schiff. Now, you didn't do anything wrong, did you? Of course not. Okay, next question. <laughs> I mean, it, it, this is a – I'd say it was laughable, except it's so darn serious. The threat to our uh, our basic constitutional rights. And it just it just escalated over the weekend when we learned – that all of the telephone communications com- companies in the country have been subpoenaed for all of the phone and email traffic records of anybody involved in any aspect of Chris questioning election integrity and all of their communications dating from November 1st before the election until January 31st. I, I mean, this is a witch hunt. It's a law enforcement operation. There's no conceivable legislative purpose for this. And I hope the courts will eventually put a stop to it. Oh, I do too. But I don't have the faith that they will. I just don't know. You know, John, some of the lower courts are giving us some good decisions on various things. I think you would agree with that. But we have such, I don't have confidence that as it makes its way up up the ladder that the Supreme Court I just don't have any idea if we can really trust them to make good decisions on this. And it's, it's, so it's a scary time. We, we can't. And, and, and something I disclosed last week, I learned a couple of weeks ago. You know, you heard the mantra that, well, 90 cases have looked at all the election evidence from Trump and rejected it in every one. And that's just not true. In most of those cases, the cases were dismissed on technical procedural grounds without everybody ever looking at the merits of the underlying merits of the evidence of illegality and fraud. But I learned I learned one of the key cases up in up in Pennsylvania in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. I learned and I've, I, I learned from an inside source and confirmed it with another inside source that the chief judge solicited the views of the court members, the judges, uh, and and before he created the panel, panels of, 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 of appellate courts are supposed to be randomly drawn. But the chief judge solicited the views in an email to all the judges and then picked the three Republicans who had said, I don't think the Trump campaign has standing to challenge the illegal illegal conduct of election officials, contrary to the legislative rules. Only the legislature has standing. And then the chief judge put those three Republicans on the panel, not randomly assigned, so that it would look like 
even Republican judges are rejecting Trump's claims. I mean, this is a massive amount of corruption in the judiciary, if all of that is true. Um, And I think we've got to get to the bottom of it. I would uh, add to my witness list, let's get those people on before the January 6th committee. And if there is corruption in the judiciary, that's something that the, the Congress could legislate about. But they're not allowed to legislate about uh, our private communications because that's protected by the First Amendment. They're not allowed to legislate about our attorney-client privilege communications because those are protected. Um, And yet that's what they're doing. This is why Steve Bannon refused to comply. This is why Mark Meadows and Jeff Clark and others are refusing to comply. They have very legitimate claims that the information the J6 committee is seeking from them is covered by executive privilege or in my case, by attorney-client privilege. Um, and, and, yet, and yet, Benny Thompson and that committee think that they can unilaterally just say, well, we've heard your objection and we overrule it. Now testify or go to jail for contempt of Congress. This is, and, and yet, uh, in my case, for example, uh, if I claim attorney-client privilege and they overrule my objection and say, you've got to talk about your privileged communications with your client, my California ethics rules say I have to defend those client confidences at every peril to myself. And the courts in California have said that includes suffering a criminal contempt charge by the court uh, if you do not, uh, if, if you reveal, uh, you know, you have to be willing to, to take a criminal contempt rather than revealing those client privileges. So they have put us in a bind where we either violate our ethical duties at great peril to ourselves, uh, or we violate our attorney-client privileges. This is not anything any lawyer or any citizen ought to be put in, and yet this is the modus operandi of this particular committee. Well, nobody doubts what you're saying, John, because we've seen the abuses in every level. I talk about COVID all the time. It's a whole other issue, but they're doing the same thing with there. It's like there is just this lawlessness. I want to I drill down just for a second before we leave this particular point on this uh, about the communications being required of you because it really actually affects, I think, a lot of my listeners and friends. And uh, I'm going to read, I believe this is from your attorney, I believe. The letters sent by the committee specifically requested that these companies preserve information, meaning the phone companies or telecommunications companies, about individuals who were listed on permit applications or otherwise involved in organizing, funding, or speaking at the January 5th or January 6th rallies in in D.C., relating to objecting to the certification of the Electoral College vote, and individuals potentially involved with discussions of plans to challenge, delay, or interfere with the January 6, 2021 certification. The letters identified not just metadata, but the content of of communications, including all emails, voice messages, text, SMS, MMS messages, videos, photographs, direct messages, address books, contact lists, and other files or other data communications stored in or sent from the account. You know, it's just, uh, it's really stunning. It's just stunning, John, where we are. It, it, It does remind me so much of the Soviet Union when I was a girl growing up and all of the nightmare stories were heard about what was happening there in China too. And who would have thought that we would live long enough to see this kind of abuse in our own country. It's just shocking. It really I is. Guess, I, 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 I guess when they're pursuing Soviet-style communist agendas, we ought not to be surprised that they are deploying Soviet-style Stalinist tactics. Um, the question for us is whether we're going to stand up to it and fight it. 
And I decided to take a very public role in fighting it. Look, let, let, uh, I, I, can't, I can't acknowledge whether I have had communications with anybody or not. Um, uh, but let's suppose that I did, uh, just for, for, you know, so that they could then take my contact list as they've requested uh, and expose it. And all of the people who may or may not have been advising me about uh, uh, election fraud activity that they saw, they're going to be published that their names are going to be published. A lot of people, uh, I suspect, uh, w- you know, reached out to folks on conditions of confidentiality so that they didn't lose their jobs. They didn't get, uh, you know, attacked in social media the way I have been. Uh, this, this is, well, there's an old Supreme Court case called NAACP versus Alabama, where, where the old uh, racist Democrats in the South were trying to force the NAACP to disclose its membership list. So that, that they could hand those names over to the Ku Klux Klan uh, with with untoward consequences, uh, and that's we're not dealing with it quite at that level, but 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 the cancel culture operation designed to attack anybody who stood up, who who commented about illegality and fraud in the election. Um, you know, they're trying to shut down American voices, American free speech rights, American freedom of association and the right to petition our government for redress of grievances. And they're trying to do it by scare tactics, uh, by cancel culture tactics. And I'm just not going to allow myself to be put in the position of having to bring other people in uh, to that kind of scrutiny in the way that I've had to deal with. Can I give my, uh, my website, Sandy? Yes, Uh, I was just going to do that. Very important. I've obviously had to hire uh, terrific attorney uh, law firms to help me with all this. And we set up a legal defense fund. Uh, and there's a wonderful site called givesendgo.com. And if you put that in and then you put back uh, forward slash Eastman, it'll take you directly to my legal defense fund. And I hope uh, anybody that sent $5 or $500 or whatever you can uh, to help us uh, cover the the legal fees here, not just for me, but for all of the people that uh, are going to be put in the same situation that I've been put in uh, if the committee gets its way. Um, and I think it's extremely important that collectively we as Americans stand up to this unjust violation of due process, unfair process, illegal process, uh, and start taking back basic notions of justice, um, equal justice under the law that uh, our Constitution promises. Yeah, no question about it. Let me repeat that. It's givesendgo.com slash Eastman. GiveSendGo.com slash Eastman. You know, John is a, a prominent attorney, and so I think people probably think, John, that you have lots of money and you can afford this, but it's not true. Anyone can be bankrupted uh, by the things that are coming after John. They're trying to take his law license away, and we actually want to talk about that, too. We will in just a second, but um, there's also a prayer button on that site if you would like to just uh, give some words to John and his family of comfort, because they've actually been threatened, too, as a family. It's tough really tough, as you can imagine. This is Sandy Rios in the morning. We'll be right back with our guest, John Eastman. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. 
people have called you a traitor. I, I need you to respond to these folks because this is a consistent thing that I hear every single day. On January 6th, I said that I believe there were irregularities about which I was concerned. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to have a fair hearing before the Congress. But from the founding of this nation forward, it's been well established that elections are to be governed at the state level. Mm -hmm. And that the only role the Congress has is to open and count the electoral votes that are submitted by states across the country. Mm -hmm. No more and no less than that. Mm -hmm. And you know, in January of 2017, I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Bible says in Psalm 15 that you, he keeps his oath even when it hurts. Mm -hmm. And on that day, I could relate to that sentiment. But I wanted to keep my oath to the Constitution. I know in my heart of hearts that on that day, we did our duty under the Constitution. I, I don't know if President Trump and I will ever see eye to eye on that day, mm -hmm. uh, or that many of our most ardent supporters mm -hmm. will agree with my decision that day. But I know I did the right thing. So what about his next decision regarding the future? Mike Pence okay, travels we don't need to New Hampshire this month. <clears throat> All right, so that was uh, the voice of Vice President Mike Pence. He was on a, an interview with uh, CBN recently commenting on what happened on January the 6th. Why did he move ahead to certify those electoral votes in the various states? Uh, he says it was uh, doing, he was doing his constitutional duty. He was keeping his oath. Uh, he says Congress's only role is to open and count the ballots, nothing more, nothing less. Well, my guest, uh, John Eastman, was uh, central to encouraging President, Vice President Pence to delay that count. And so I'm, it's a good time for us to ask. This is an issue that comes up all the time. It's an issue I've talked about. I think most of you know how I feel about it. But I want to know what John Eastman, the constitutional authority, thinks about his response. John, uh, what, do you, what is your response to Vice President Pence's uh, apology for his actions on January 6th in that interview? Well, sure. And, you know, and people can see more in depth about what my response to that is. Uh, if they go to that uh, website we gave out earlier, givesendgo.com slash Eastman, I've got linked there several of the articles, um, uh, including uh, an extensive uh, article just published by the Claremont Review of Books, uh, where I analyze the advice that I was given. And I can prove that Pence is wrong and uh, with a couple of hypotheticals. Let's suppose um, the Democrat governor from Kansas certified the Biden electors, even though it was quite clear that Trump won Kansas. And those certified electoral votes are sitting before a Vice President Pence. His authority under the Constitution is to count is to open all of the ballots in the presence of the House and Senate, and then the ballots shall be counted. Is he really asserting that he had no authority, that he was simply a potted plant who had to count those obviously fraudulent ballots? Um, I think that's clearly no. Another example, let's suppose, as happened here, um, uh, we had two slates of electors from different states. We had two states of electors from seven different states. Um, none of the Republican electors had been certified by the state legislature. But let's say um, the, the legislature in Georgia, um, instead of being barred from having a special session to look at the illegality in that state, uh, actually were called into special session, assessed the illegality in that state, determined it was outcome determinative, 
and, 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 and certified an alternate slate of electors, the Trump electors. And so now you had two slates of electors uh, uh, pending before uh, uh, Vice President Pence and the joint session of Congress. Which are you to count? And obviously you can't count both. That would give Georgia double. You can't count one and not the other without making a judgment of which one is the valid one. So inherent in that constitutional authority is a judgment about validity. Um, Vice President, and, and, and throughout our history, there have been major historical figures in Congress that have argued that those powers necessarily include the power to judgment. That's not what we were asking him to do at the end. As you heard on the, on the, on the clip you played at the beginning of the program, we simply asked him to accede to request by the state legislators, who unfortunately uh, had not been called into special session to deal with this issue in a timely way in December, but we're now coming back into regular session and begging the vice president to give them a week or 10 days to assess the impact of the acknowledged illegality in the conduct of their election, and then to determine if that impact was bigger than the margin to determine what to do about it. And if it was smaller than the margin, to recertify the Biden electors. Um, Vice President Pence talked about throughout our history, states have controlled the election for presidential electors. That's true. But he refused to accede to those requests from the state legislators to allow them to do just that. Um, and I, so I think he's wrong on several fronts there. Uh, and that's why uh, that's why so many of the Trump supporters uh, just just uh, don't uh, don't lend him any support anymore. Yeah. To be specific, uh, legislators from Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin and Michigan all sent letters to Vice President Pence in early January uh, talking about the manipulation of ballots and election laws and asking for a little bit more time to please delay so they could really look into it. Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So he basically he ignored those letters and acted as though he had no choice. I have a, I, well, I am a... Well, and in his statement that was put out the morning of January 6th, he acknowledged the illegality in the election. He acknowledged it twice in that statement. And yet, and yet decided he uh, would not because he, in his view, could not do anything about it. I mean, that means you're going to stand by on this notion that you're just, you know, a, 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 an abacus without any judgment authority given to you by the 12th Amendment or by Article 2 of the Constitution. And you have to count things that you acknowledge were fraudulently provided to you. I don't know anything in American history that would accept that view. I don't either, and uh, I I've, I feel very strongly that he he more than made a mistake. I think it was a. This is my view, John. This is not a. Uh, this will not hold up in a court of law. But I've known Congress. We used to be Congressman Pence for a long time, and I think he knew which he thought he knew which way the winds were blowing. And certainly, Republican establishment types, which is who he was affiliated with, wanted this to go down the way it went down. They wanted Trump out of there. And I just think he was inclined to agree with them, and he didn't do anything to stop it. And that's my set, my political assessment of it. Um, I'm curious to know, after all of your knowledge of the uh, malfeasance in so many of these states, would you still say that Pennsylvania was the one that could have really stopped all of this, that the case in Pennsylvania, the details that happened there, because I know that you— represented that to you were involved in that issue with president trump do you think that was the most powerful case that could have had an effect on the outcome of the election well the the, the easier cases are both georgia and wisconsin because the margins there are much closer so so uh the 50 or 70,000 um 
ballots that appear to have been illegally harvested from nursing homes is nearly four, four times the margin, the 20,000 vote margin in Wisconsin. The illegal ballot harvesting effort, uh, apparently funded by um, uh, the Zuckerberg money in Wisconsin, in Dane County, where the University of Wisconsin is, they called it democracy in the park. Uh, they deputized campaign volunteers to make them deputy county clerks so that they could be in-person uh, human drop boxes. Uh, to try and finagle the rules about uh, return of absentee ballots. That that single operation collected 17,500 ballots when the statewide margin was 20,000. Um, you you know you look at Georgia and and the uh, it, it, watering down of the signature verification requirements that affected more than the number of 10,877 ballots at the margin there. But in Pennsylvania, the Secretary of State there unilaterally got dispensed with a signature verification requirement, unilaterally barred observers from meaningful observation. Um, uh, County clerks in several key counties, Democrat-controlled, provided uh, early access to to absentee ballot rolls um, so that the Democrat Party could engage in an operation to cure those ballots illegally under state law because you're not allowed to release that information until the morning of election day. And they were doing this the day before. Um, you know, all of those things combined. Why are those things so important? The legislature has the constitutional authority to determine the manner for choosing election. And they do that by passing election statutes. When those statute, and, the, and those statutes are designed to try and minimize the risk of fraud in the area most susceptible to risk, which is absentee ballots. And so when the secretary of state or county clerks unilaterally alter or suspend those rules, they are taking under their own hands a constitutional power that is not theirs and weakening the protections against fraud that are put in place. Um, All of that happened. There's no dispute that those things happened. The question is um, whether the consequences of that illegal conduct were bigger than the margin. I strongly believe they were, and that's what the legislatures were asking Pence to allow them to look into. All right. So bottom line, though, uh, we did not prevail, those of us that felt there was fraud in the election and that fairness dictated that uh, these other this should be considered. All these states should sort this out before we could determine the winner of the election. It didn't happen. Uh, Pence certified those electoral votes. And so uh, as a result of that, John is in the crosshairs of, you know, propagating the big lie, the big lie that I tell every day. So far, you know, I haven't been on trial, but I probably will be. And that's going to be the case with all of us. We will have to bow at the knee of the big lie uh, if they have their way. But right now, they're coming after people who are on the front lines like John, uh, like, uh, like Steve Bannon, like many, many others, like many of you who were there on January 6th. And they are coming. The FBI is involved in this. It's just astounding. It is astounding, the corruption of our system. And yet I would say there are still threads of hope. And so we're not going to quit. So right now we need to help John. Uh, He has uh, incurred all kinds of legal bills. He's in the process of incurring more, trying to fight the January 6th committee. And he's established this, uh, this site, givesendgo.com slash Eastman, givesendgo.com. Go slash com dash com dot com slash Eastman. Give send go dot com slash Eastman. And uh, there is a prayer button and there's also a way you can give any amount that you can. You know, whatever you can afford to give John and his family, I know he will appreciate it. And the second part of this, if you could quickly say, uh, John, they are um, they're trying to take away your law license also. Can you say a word about that? 
Well, uh, uh, a, a Democrat front operation in D.C. filed a bar complaint against me way back in October. And, uh, uh, you know, it's nonsense. I mean, the notion that anything I have said um, uh, was contrary to law uh, or beyond the bounds of, of permissible advocacy for a client is preposterous. Um, uh, but but the bar complaint is there and we have to deal with it. Um, but, yeah, no, this is this is the way the other side plays. And uh, it's not a game. Uh, These are serious things and serious matters, and we need to fight them. If look, I mean, one of the one of the reasons why I was even involved in the Trump litigation is because the amount of cancel culture pressure brought to bear on large firms, um, uh, if they took on any component of representation of President Trump, um, you know, all of their other clients were threatening to pull pull the plug on their business. You know, this is, I mean, you know, (laughs) I mean. You know, put it put it in context. These firms get awards for representing terrorists in Guantanamo Bay, but they get canceled and their business uh, destroyed if they were to represent President Trump. I mean, this is how um, bizarre the notions of of, <laughs> of of legal representation have become. Uh, and yet that's what we're dealing with. And those of us who are out on the front lines uh, willing to take on those representations to challenge the clear illegalities, the admitted illegalities conduct of the election um, are, are need to have the backing of our friends um, and new friends as well uh, to, to, to keep up this fight. All right. So the address to help John and his family is givesendgo.com, givesendgo.com slash Eastman. John, one last question. Uh, many, uh, many, the Republican leadership, the establishment brands branch or wing of the Republican Party, I've heard them say it privately. I've heard them say it publicly. We need to get past that election. Let's have enough of that. That's in the past. We've got to look forward. Um, your thoughts. You have 30 seconds. Should we get just get past so this? I don't know how we look forward. If, in fact, they're illegally uh, conducting elections to skew them to alter the results, how do you go forward with any faith in the confidence that 2022 or 2024 is going to be any different? Um, whether or not we can unravel Uh, the consequences of the illegality from the last election. I think it's extremely important that we identify the illegality so that we can put in place steps to prevent it from ever happening again. Okay, John, well said. You did it. You get a gold star from the Sandy Rios show for giving a complex answer in such a short time. I would sit in your law class any day. Givesendgo.com slash Eastman is the place where you can help John and his family. Givesendgo.com slash Eastman. Thank you for listening, John. Thank you so much for your time. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.